Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today I want to talk to you guys about rivalries. It's the middle of football season, and I don't know if you guys follow football or whatever, but if you, if you pay attention at all to the college football uh, world, you know that it's getting to be later in the season and the rivalry games are upon us. You start seeing these schools that have battled against each other year after year after year, going on almost a hundred years now. It's just an amazing rivalry that grandfathers played, fathers played, and their sons are now on the field playing. It's pretty profound stuff, and the fans can get into it, see the face painting, and we, we, we have the joy here in St. Louis of having a really good rivalry with the Cardinals and the Cubs, and uh, for those of you who are Cubs fans out there, I won't out you at this point, but uh, just know that uh, we know you're there. So, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, we, we know what it is to be in a rivalry here in the St. Louis area, and you've got other rivalries. Baseball, once again, there's many history rivalry, rivalries from years uh, past that, that people really get involved in, and they can get really serious, too. But the thing that's, that's interesting is if you think about rivalries, there is no rivalry that compares with the rivalry of all rivalries. It's a rivalry that has been around forever, and it's the sibling rivalry. It's the sibling rivalry. Who has siblings, brother or sister? Anybody have a brother or a sister? Raise your hand. Most of you do. Some of you do not. For those of you who do, you know. You, you know. You might have... You might have a good relationship, you might have a not-so-good relationship, but whatever your relationship with your siblings, you know what it's like to have that sibling rivalry. I have a brother who's two years younger than me. You know, he spent his whole childhood trying to catch up to me, and then he did, and he got better at everything than me, and now I just very upset at him. But no, I love my brother, and he and I get along fine. We, uh, our, our relationship is one of, uh, you know, right hooks and kidney shots, but then we give each other hugs at the end, so it's all good. But you know what it is to, you know, have that game controller chucked at your head, or you know what it is to, to feel that noogie grinding just a little too much, or you know what it is whenever you accidentally play a little too rough and your sibling's on the ground writhing in pain, and you go, oh, don't tell mom. We know what it's like to be in that sibling rivalry. Well, the sibling rivalry of all sibling rivalries is what we're going to talk about today. Jacob and Esau. These two brothers had, been, had never known a life without being in rivalry with each other. They were twins. And as we read in our Old Testament lesson today, God told Rebekah, their mother, that within your womb two nations are warring with each other. And I've, I'm not a woman, so I've not been pregnant, but from what I hear, whenever women are pregnant, especially with twins, it certainly feels like there's a war going on inside of them. So I, I see that from a, from a very realistic standpoint, but God is saying something more profound here. He's saying that from their very conception, these two are destined to be at odds with each other. Two twin boys, Esau, the older one, and Jacob, the younger. So, when they're born, it's pretty clear that they're rivals. Esau comes first, but Jacob is having none of it. So he grabs onto his brother's heel and says, not so fast, I'm coming too. And he spends the rest of his life doing just that, 
trying to keep up with his brother, trying to not let his brother outpace him in any way, but to do what he needs to to be the favored son. But Esau is, he's a big guy. He's handsome by ancient Near East standards, even though it says he's incredibly hairy. I mean, they had different standards back then, perhaps. Um, He's uh, very good at his skill set. He's an excellent hunter. And he is uh, dignified in the eyes of his father. He's very clearly the one that Isaac favors. And he's chosen him to be the one who he's going to give his birthright to. Now Isaac, you guys know the story. Isaac is going blind. His, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, loves Jacob, wants him to have some part in the, the family lineage and the, and the blessing. So puts the sheep's wool on him so he feels hairy like his brother goes in, steals the birthright, His brother comes back, and I don't really know how to put it other than he's filled with rage. He seeks to emulate another sibling rivalry, that of Cain and Abel. And we know how that story goes, right? So Jacob flees. He knows that his brother wants his blood. And now this sibling rivalry has evolved from petty squabbling and backbiting and out-leveraging each other to now. These two are mortal enemies. Jacob flees, and he's never with his family again for many, many years, decades. But God blesses Jacob. He gives him uh, an abundance of, of possessions. He gives him a, a, a family, a wonderful family. I mean, it may not be a wonderful family, but it's a big family. Um, he gives him a lot of privilege and prestige and power, and, and he gives him flocks and herds so that he can have a, a strong and, and, and powerful uh, uh, presence wherever he goes. And guess what? He does the same thing for Jacob's brother Esau as well. But the two don't see each other. They stay far away from each other. They avoid each other at all costs. Then we get to a point where something interesting happens. Jacob wrestles with God. You guys know this story? He, he wrestles with God, and, and he eventually pins God down enough, somehow, that he forces a blessing from God. And God says, no longer are you Jacob, now your name is Israel, because you have contended with God. So something interesting happens then. Jacob is moving along the path, the kind of herdsman's path with all of his entourage, his his family, his his servants, his flocks, his tents, his his, uh, supply carts, maybe some guardsmen, some hired hands, some soldier-type guys to protect and defend this camp. And he's going along, and they reach this, like, river or stream. And... There at the banks of the river and stream is where this wrestling with God happens. And then news comes to him that across that river is his brother Esau. And you can almost sense in the narrative, Jacob just turned white. Because then he hears, and he's coming to visit you with 400 men. And Jacob's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. We don't exactly see eye to eye, my brother and me. Uh, this is not good. And so he thinks, what can I do? Uh, I know. I'll give him a bunch of stuff and say, say wonderful things about how great Esau is. I'll call him my master even, and I'll say, here, take all of these wonderful things. 
And then he gets even more nervous, and he's like, I know, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll grovel before him, and I'll admit my wrongdoing, and I'll, and I'll kowtow to him, and I'll bow down and humble myself before him. And maybe he, you know, he probably won't forgive me, but at least maybe he might have pity on me, and he won't destroy me immediately outright. He'll just kind of let me go. So that's exactly kind of how Jacob does it, right? He, he's so uh, scared of, frankly scared of his brother, that when they go to cross over the stream, guess who he sends first? The women and the children. <laughs> brave, Jacob, brave, right? Would be the manly man. He says, you guys go ahead. Maybe he won't hurt you. Not very good. Not a very good look for Jacob. Then he sends across all the carts and the horses and all the other people, and then the last person across is who? It's Jacob, right? And he goes, and he sees his brother, and he's like, okay, I, I'm practicing my speech. I know everything I'm going to say. I'm going to grovel and bow down. And he sees Jacob, or sees Esau walking at him with purpose, and I think he thinks to himself, here it comes. I'm about to get killed. And he sees his brother walking with him with a purpose, and then he takes off running. And then he gets up to Jacob, and he wraps him up in a hug. What a story that is, right? The, the fear that must have been just utterly just anxiety and, and, and worry that was totally infecting Jacob, not just that day, but for his whole life. Think about all of that weight just falling off of him all at once when his brother runs to him with a hug. It's an amazing story. It's a story of reconciliation. If these two brothers who are mortal enemies for decades can reconcile? What, what relationships in our lives are as damaged as these two men's relationships? They were about to kill each other, and then they hug. What happened between these, these rival brothers, these mortal enemies on one hand, and these friends in their golden years, these brothers who were bonded once more in love for each other? What was, the, what was the hinge point that led from that to this? Well, like all things, what's the hinge point of our lives? God. God is what happened. God had some mighty things to say to Jacob and some mighty things to say to Esau in their lives. He transformed them so that they were new men when they, reintroduced to, when they were reintroduced to each other. Esau, when he heard that his brother Jacob was there, even though we're not told this in the story, must have been excited. He wanted to reunite with his brother. He wanted to, to come and embrace him and let him know that he still loved him, even though he had offended him so greatly. And Jacob desperately desired to receive that forgiveness from his brother, but never thought he was worthy. And so they hugged it out. This reminds me of another event that occurred, not in the Old Testament, but in the New Jesus is telling the parable, you probably heard this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. And you know how it goes, right? There's <clears throat> this younger brother who says to his father, I want nothing to do with you. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go do my life, do things my way, and I want no part of this, just your money. And the father gives it to him. After that level of disrespect... He gives him the money and says, go on your way. The son takes the money and spends it on frivolous living and finds himself poor 
and in despair finds himself working in a pig farm, wishing he could have something to eat so much so that he looks at the food the pigs are eating and starts licking his lips. And in that low moment, and that pit of despair kind of a moment, he goes, wait a minute, what in the world am I doing? My father, my father's home is where I belong. I could probably leverage something through our relationship where he would let me be a servant on his property. I could never be a son again, certainly. I've offended him too greatly, but if I grovel and beg and plead, he might let me at least be a servant in his home, and then I'll have food and a place to live at least. I'll have some dignity in this life. And so that's what he does. He comes back to his father, and as he's walking on the road back to his father's house, he's rehearsing his speech, kind of like Jacob was. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, Father, I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of, of anything that you have. I, I don't deserve to be in your home, so please, if you will just allow me to be your servant, I'll work for the rest of my life for you as a servant. And he says, and I'll, and I'll bow down, and I'll, I'll kiss his ring, and I'll, I'll grovel, I'll do whatever it takes, just so that I have some, some way of surviving this. And he's rehearsing these words in his mind, and as he's walking along, he sees far across the way, and it worked better in the early services when I had my robes, but he sees his father pulling his robes up and running. Now, this is back when they wore robes, kind of like our, our pastor's alb, and they, it's hard to run in those things, in case you guys didn't know. You trip on them if you run too much. They had to hike them up. Old men did not run anyways. It was undignified. They had no reason to strap on some New Balance shoes and go for a jog in the morning back then. They didn't need to do that. Old men didn't run. But this old man is running for his life. He's running right at his son, and you can almost see in the son's mind the same question of Jacob. Is this father of mine coming to assault me? <laughs> what is happening right now? But then when he gets there, what does he do? He wraps him in a great big hug. And he says, go get a robe, go get a ring. We have to celebrate my lost son is returned to me. So think about that for a second. Think about that prodigal son. Think about Jacob and Esau and what that reconciliation means. But remember, interestingly, that's not the whole parable, is it? That's only act one. So often when we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, we forget that there's a part two, and I think part of that is we call it the parable of the prodigal son. We should probably call it the parable of the two brothers. That's a far better name for it because it, it really is a reflection on two men and how they live their lives and how they interact with their father. So <clears throat> the father is so overjoyed by the return of his son. He says, let's have a party. Let's have a blowout. Invite everybody in the neighborhood. We're going to kill the fattened calf. That's how you know it's a party because that is a meal that's like half your annual salary. We're spending it on this party. It's a big deal. Probably something you do maybe once in your life. So this celebration, the way he's setting it up to be a host for the celebration shows for this father, this is maybe the best day of his whole life. He's so thrilled. But there's somebody at the party that's somebody who should be at the party but who, who is absent. Everyone else in the town, everyone else in the villages and the surrounding farms 
is there enjoying the generosity of the Father who's hosting, but one person is not there. Some, one person is suspiciously absent, and that's the older brother, the older son of the Father. He's out working hard in the fields, trying to make sure he shows his father that he's the serious one, the one who's going to take good care of his, his legacy and his fortune, the one who is going to do right by his father so that he can earn what's coming to him. And he's walking back to the homestead, and he sees that his father's house, for lack of a better term, it's bumping. There's music blaring out the windows. There's strobe effects. There's like a, you know, disco ball spinning, and there's a DJ. I mean, it's a parable. I can make these things up too, right? So he's doing all these things, and he's like, what in the world is going on at my father's house? And a servant comes to him and says, your brother, your long-lost brother has returned. This is, a, this is a point where there's two ways the, brother, the older brother can respond. Think about this for a second. He can respond like Esau, right? When he hears about the presence of his brother, Esau did what? He was happy. He wanted to run to his brother and give him a great big hug. He could be the kind of guy who said, My brother? I thought he was gone forever. I'm so glad he's home. I've got a bottle of wine back in my house. I'll go grab it and I'll be back and we'll celebrate together. What a wonderful day. That's one way that he could react. But how did he actually react? Not that way at all. He heard that news, and his heart and his whole demeanor just darkened and hardened. And he said, I cannot believe my father would invite him back into his house. I will not go anywhere near that party, because if I were to do that, I would disrespect myself. And so he folds his arms across his chest, and he refuses to go in. Now, this is an indignity for the, the older brother's father. He has shamed him by refusing to attend his celebration. And then doubly so, the father is doubly disrespected because he is the host now, has to leave the party that he's hosting to go have a conversation with his insubordinate son. And so he steps out, and he's like, Rejoice, come celebrate with us. Your brother has returned. And the older brother says, This son of yours comes back. He doesn't even call him my brother. He doesn't even call him your son. He says, This son of yours. He almost dehumanizes him. He can't even stand the presence of him in his own mind, so he puts him as far away from himself as possible. This Son of yours has returned and you kill a fattened calf? I can't even believe this. And he very quickly shows us that his real, where his real heart lies. Now, the younger brother, what did he do? He disrespected God. He disrespected the father, right? That's where the parable part enters in. The father is God. The one who is the, the younger son of those who disrespect God, turn away from him and go live a life apart from his commands. But then he turns and he returns to the father. The older brother disrespects his father in a different way. The younger brother said, I want your stuff and then I'm leaving, and he did. The older brother said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to do what you want me to do and follow your commands because I want your stuff. Is that really better? 
Is it better that he says, I want your stuff and I'm going to do evil? Or is it, I'm going to do good, but I want your stuff? That, that, that's what Jesus is showcasing in this parable in a lot of ways. He's talking to a group of Pharisees about a group of sinful people, and he's showing that there's, there's joy not in the fact that we, we do good or do bad, but rather that we love the Father. And that we don't just care about what he can get us or what he can give us or how he can make us look, but that we truly care about God in our lives. And we want to know him. We want to trust in him and put our faith and confidence in him. And so Jesus, he, he puts this image of two parties, two separate ways in which you can totally disrespect the Father through evil or through trying to do good. Now, think about the older brother for a minute. What should the older brother have done? Well, certainly, once the young brother comes back, he should have rejoiced with his father at his younger brother's return. But even more importantly, he should have done something else. Before it got to that point, at the very first sign of the younger brother leaving, once he was away, what should the older brother have done? The older brother should have had a conversation with that younger brother and saying, you're disrespecting our father. Knock it off. This is not okay. Return to the loving embrace of your father. Who loves you? And he should have gone as far away as his little brother went to bring him home again. That's what the, the elder brother should have done right from the very beginning. And so in this parable, like we said, we see that the, the younger brother are those sinful people who reject God. The, the older brother are like the Pharisees who think they're doing good to merit God's favor, but they don't actually love God what Jesus is trying to set up is an example of what the true older brother should do. So then, who is that true older brother who leaves to go find the younger brother who has turned away from his father to bring him home again? Clearly, Jesus is suggesting, it's me. I'm the one who sets aside my dignity. I'm the one who sets aside my life. I'm the one who gives up my very life to go seek and save those who are lost, who are in the pit of despair, to bring them home to the Heavenly Father. That's exactly what Jesus does. He is the true older brother for us. So in our relationships that we have in our lives with brothers with sisters, with mothers, with fathers, with children, with people in our lives, those relationships which are damaged and broken, Jesus has a word for us through this parable and through the teaching of Esau and Jacob as well. Reconciliation is possible. But the thing that turns warring Jacob and Esau into brothers with mutual love and respect is God. Jesus is the one who transforms broken relationships into reconciliation. That's why as our true older brother, Jesus calls us his brothers and his sisters here in his house to reconcile with each other. Because he says what unites you is stronger than blood, it's stronger than the same last name, it's stronger than living under the same roof. It's stronger than going to the same school or being in the same sports teams. It's stronger than any of these things. 
What unites you is not those incidental matters. What unites you is the blood of Christ, our true elder brother, who has gone to no end of depths, no end of, of length to find you and bring you back to the Father. And so he says, then, just as Esau and Jacob reunited, just as the true elder brother and the younger brother and the father are reunited, so too can your relationships be reconciled. And that's great joy in that. It's also a great calling that, that we think about this. We have a calling because of our relationship to Jesus Christ to find healing in the relationships that are broken. When you think about the thing that people most regret when they, when they find themselves at the end of a long life, it's not that they wish they had more prestige. It's not that they wish they had more friends. It's not that they wish they had more vacations and more pictures in their photo album. It's not that they lived in a bigger house. Every single time it's, I wish that I would have reconciled with that loved one that I harbored ill intent for. I wish I would have asked for forgiveness from that person that I hurt. The beauty of it is in Christ, he calls us and he equips us to actually make that change. So that when we get to the end of our our lives, instead of saying, I regret, I regret, we can say, man, I'm so glad I made that phone call. I'm so glad I wrote that email. I'm so glad I went to that family reunion, as painful as those can be sometimes. I'm so glad I sat down and had that beer. I'm so glad that I watched that game because it brought healing and reconciliation so that I don't regret those broken relationships. Not every relationship in our lives will be fixed magically, but Christ does call us to continue to work to restore those people that we have hurt by forgiveness and also to be reconciled to those who have hurt us not an easy thing, but it is a good thing. And it's what allows us to say amen to our true elder brother, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and we praise you at this time for your mercy to us, and we pray that you'll continue to guide us and keep us, that we might do your will, that we might seek to heal and reconcile relationships which are broken. You are our true older brother who finds us to bring us home to the Father. And we thank you for calling us this day to join you in that mission to find those who are lost and bring them to the Father, even those who are closest to us in our families. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.